Victor Seçilgünlütaş stands as a beacon in the realm of adolescent psychology, particularly in her nuanced exploration of bullying, bystander intervention, and intergroup relations. Her profilic body of work, ranging from the social inclusion of refugee and native peers to the intricate dynamics of theory of mind, showcases not only her academic rigor, but also her deep commitment to understanding the multifaceted experiences of young individuals. Dr. Gönültaş's research, especially her focus on bias-based bullying and the experiences of immigrants and refugees, is a testament to her empathy and education to fostering inclusivity and understanding. Beyond her impressive academic achievements, her work reflects a character deeply invested in the betterment of society, driven by a genuine desire to bridge divides and champion the cause of many marginalized groups. Her contribution to the field are both invaluable and inspiring, painting a picture of a researcher whose heart and intellect work in tandem to eliminate the complexities of human behavior and relationships. Here is our conversation. Please welcome Sechil Gönültaş. Um, what initially sparked your interest in psychology? Was there a particular moment or experience that drew you into this field? Right, have I did the questions? <laughs> okay, yes. thank you. Thanks so much for this opportunity. Actually, it's so great for you to like you know uh, for us to just introduce ourselves and talk a little bit about psychology, our research areas. So in general, uh, I remember when I started my psychology, like as an undergrad, I remember that it's like just understanding the human thoughts, kind of a motivation for me. Then after I started my education, and I realized it's actually more than this, just understanding the human thoughts, the psychology actually covers more than this. Then the complexity of psychology actually, like, you know, uh, took my attention and took my interest in it. So, like, it was my main motivation just to understand human thoughts, behaviors, and, you know, everything behind it. You were interested in behavior rather than the mind, I guess. Both, like both thoughts. I mean, when I like say thoughts, I also refer the kind of like mind part. But mm -hmm. you know, just trying to predict some motivation, some thoughts from humans' behavior as well. So kind of like this intersection of like human behavior, motivation, thoughts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Reverse engineering behavior so that we understand what's happening. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you were thinking cognitive psychology before or uh, I mean I'm I was interested in cognitive psychology part too then I started to do some research on uh, I mean I attended some labs actually and I involved in some research with children and then I amazed by my experience with children and I started to like wonder more about the cognitive and social aspect of development, especially in children and adolescents. I started very, very like uh, studying with very young, uh, ch like infants first. Mm -hmm. Then I actually 
like a field that I'm most interested in understanding more older children and adolescents particularly, then I shifted my focus in developmental psychology to a little bit uh, to older and like uh, adolescents, older children and adolescents. Uh, can you give some insight into how the, this uh, internship or uh, lab experience you had was? Um, how did you start doing it and did you struggle with it? How did you overcome mm -hmm. that? So, okay, I started, uh, I did one Erasmus internship in mm -hmm. England while I was an undergrad at Boston. Cool. During this uh, like research experience, internship experience, I studied with the, I mean, I did coding a lot with the uh, 3D uh, ultrasound images, videos of mothers uh, who were like pregnant and we were examining whether like uh, fetuses of those mothers uh, their like you know uh, fetus health is going to be related with the mother's smoking behavior that, that was the overall project idea but in like specific to our, like my part of this uh, that I was examining some uh, I was like just uh, watching some videos of the these ultrasound images videos and just coding the facial expressions and body movements like uh, of those fetuses and I realized that actual development starts very very early because most of in my classes we like started development right uh, after the like birth so we started like you know understanding development of infants but so that's where I didn't realize like how the prenatal period is also important I mean, it's not my research area at all right now, but you know, it's, it was a unique experience for me to actually understand how development starts very, very early than we thought. And then during my PhD, I like did a PhD in the lifespan developmental psychology program, not on the developmental psychology program, mm -hmm. because again, most of the psychology developmental psychology program consider development starts from infancy and ends around adolescence period. So in that program, I also studied a lot, uh, not studied, but you know, I took many classes about older adults as well, like how development actually should be a lifespan approach. So. Like from starting from the, my very first internship in the developmental psychology, then my PhD actually showed me like yeah, there is the a lifespan approach. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, one doesn't even think uh, a baby could have facial expressions, and um, what do they tell you really? Mm -hmm. And when does this really start happening? Facial expression thing should like happen after your face forms, head forms. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, it starts very, very early, yeah. In Nadia Ray's lab that we studied those like visual images or visual videos of this uh, 3D uh, ultrasound uh, videos, we realized that they're also like showing some uh, facial expression of uh, boredom, facial expression boredom. of being, you know, uh, being uncomfortable in that moment, so you can clearly see. I mean, we had a like clear coding sheet of their facial expression. So they were doing this uh, eye movements, they were doing this like eyebrow movements, and also through their lips, they were clearly showing if they feel like uncomfortable in that moment. So, yeah. how can you be sure that we are not just attributing these? Yes. That's a very, very big issue in psychology if you're studying more implicit ways of understanding those. So if you are not asking explicitly to the child, right? Yeah. And which most of the case happen because, you know, especially 
from uh, that period uh, until the like first years of age uh, of the child, they are not able to speak that much and they are not express themselves in that sense, right? So we have to actually find some measures to understand their uh, emotions or those kind of things from their uh, experience or from their faces. So those are kind of uh, measures that we are uh, like, we are interpreting in that way, but those are of course like developed measures based on the other like measures, you know, because like this moment, for example, is actually tell us about something yeah, that that person is not happy in that moment, right? So yeah. kind of like a universal facial expression coding where applied that to infants and children as well. I see. Yeah. And after your PhD, you started studying in uh, theory of mind, bullying, bystander effect. Mm -hmm. um, why did you kind of shift between the whole scope of developmental psychology mm -hmm. and this? Yeah, that's stories? all another story actually. Uh, I started interested in the like uh, children's social and cognitive development in my masters, <laughs> uh, and I'm most interested in the middle and high school uh, children. So it started during my masters at Koch University. Uh, in that master, I try to understand how children, because tier of mind about is mostly uh, like uh, assume that they are uh, for you know at least for seven and eight years old they are now mature abilities. Mm -hmm. But some researchers shows us that although we have those mature abilities after certain age, uh, we might not have the motivation to use. Uh, abilities in every context. That was my main question while I was designing my uh, thesis and my supervisor also, you know, uh, helped me in that sense because there were previous research to show this in adults population. So uh, they were like uh, examining the adults' mind trading motivation and mind trading and they were finding that adults are more motivated to use their mind trading abilities for uh, their in-group members compared to out-group members. So, I kind of implicate that in the... So you were trying to understand why theory of mind is ignored uh, by adolescents, adults and yeah, the ch child children. I mean, relative to younger children, there are less studies on uh, theory of mind for older children and adolescents because it's already assumed that it's a mature ability. Uh, yeah. Of course, there are many, many advanced ways of understanding theory of mind, uh, like advanced theory of mind, uh, and there are uh, advanced theory of mind tasks in the literature as well to understand like there are also some variances in adolescent theory of mind development as well but uh, again this literature is a little bit limited compared to theory of mind literature on young uh, children like you know children between three to uh, seven years old because this ability mostly develops around those times but the, of course there are more complex or advanced forms of theory of mind because when we say theory of mind most of the time uh, people uh, think about the false belief understanding like mm -hmm. first order false belief understanding yes, one or zero you either understand whether you, uh, yeah. you can understand that others can have different beliefs and those mm -hmm. beliefs can be actually false versus you know the true beliefs so mm -hmm. you can 
whether you can be able to understand the differentiation between your own beliefs versus the other's beliefs and whether those sure. beliefs can be different from each other mm -hmm. and while you have a true belief, the others can have the false belief so whether yeah. you have the understanding mm -hmm. and there is also the second order false belief understanding which is okay, the yeah. uh, little bit more advanced version of the first one mm -hmm. so whether I'm thinking that you might have a false belief about someone else, about the third person so I'm attributing that your cat now uh, knows that she is not interested in that blah blah so mm -hmm. it's kind of the, like meta uh belief, yeah and but like theory of mind is not limited to that uh like false belief understanding it's mm -hmm. just a part of it in advanced theory of mind task we have the understanding of white lies or metaphors or you know understanding the misunderstanding in that context or maybe deception so all those actually sure. called as the more complex or advanced theory of mind task controlling others is theory of mind mm -hmm when it comes to deception and or understanding the theory of mind. Mm -hmm, exactly. So, yeah. so that was my point when mm -hmm. I was conducting my master and I just uh, wanted to examine whether the children and adolescents, like middle ch uh, like children in middle school and high school, whether they would show same performance while they're attributing mental states to uh, either their in-group members as the Turkish peers mm -hmm. versus the Syrian peers as their out-group members sure. and we found that like they are more likely to attribute mental states to their in-group members compared to their out-group members mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, I uh, like this was my master thesis and I started my PhD at North Carolina State University with Kelly Mulvey and she was more interested in the bullying and bystander responses to bullying but uh, she was more interested in generalized bullying so if someone is bullying in their peer groups just because of some interpersonal characteristics like being shy. Uh, I really like uh, that research area of bullying and bystander responses because they are already related with the theory of mind literature. So I kind of like try to find some uh, intersecting points in my own research area in my master and the new research area that I started to learn about after I started my PhD because already like many studies shows that like children or those with higher tier of mind abilities they are more likely to show defining behaviors in bullying contexts. Mm. So there's already like clearly defined this link there. So I just wanted to see whether we can also find this link if the bullying is happening because of some group memberships, like if someone is bullied because of their refugee background or their immigration background or they are like because of their sexual orientation or because of their disability uh, background. So I just try to understand how these social and cognitive skills can be related to bystander responses in bullying part. By the way, the bystanders are the, like just observing the bullying, that's the weaknesses of the bullying. Mm -hmm and they have a chance to actually stop the bullying if they intervene. That's why we really like care about bystander responses yeah, because if we can promote more pro-social bystander responses, it might be more effective for bullying events to stop uh, at many cases mm -hmm. compared if just like one teacher or just one uh, school manager try to stop the bullying yes. at all. So peers are very, very effective for tools actually like resources for researcher in that sense for anti-bullying intervention programs yeah. and just we try to like find some ways to promote those pro-social defending mm -hmm. behaviors in different bullying contexts. Of course, if one finds a way to stop bullying, it will change the world I would, I would assume. So, um, and you I guess do some 
pro-social, um, I don't know, lecture type things to give some insight into into the children so that they they don't um, become victims of the bystander effect, I, I guess. Right. Uh, you mean the intervention programs? So, yeah. I mean, uh, currently uh, we are just about to start an intervention program mm -hmm. on this issue in Turkey. Uh, but before this, I mean, after doing some studies around this issue of the bullying, then we most of the time offer schools to some like give some seminars mm -hmm. to children about this, like what yes. is the bullying, exactly. you know? Because most of the case, one of our challenges is actually. Uh, children, most of the time, they don't know the definition of the bullying. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, they yeah, might not yeah. just define uh, some acts as the bullying if mm -hmm. they think that it's like they are not a big deal, right? Yeah, Because, they are just making fun. Hmm, exactly. Most of the time, what they call as bullying is the physical aggression. But there are different types of aggressions, like, yeah. you know, relational aggression, verbal aggression, or social exclusion. It's a big issue of defining the bullying first. So it's also important for us, you know, children to be aware of that, like what acts are actually called as bullying. Sure. So just to create this awareness and also just to create the awareness of they have the power to change something mm -hmm. in bullying situation. So if they are observers of the bullying, uh, if they just stay passively, we know that from literature, the bullying continue, like the bully mm -hmm. itself, the bully continue uh, their actions uh, when they know that there is no actual consequences of their bullying act, right? Yeah, sure. But when appear confronted with the bully, then they know that actually there are some consequences mm -hmm. of their actions, right. so they are, like, they are more like stuff. But of course, children might not be able to make these connections right mm -hmm. away, right? So we are just giving some, uh, you know, seminars after uh, conducting our research, just offering some seminars for children and adolescents, just to show them, you know, the power of bystander, and if they are being more uh, active bystanders, they can actually change something in their school climate. Yeah. But we are also going to start the intervention program. Uh, next term uh, to just promote pro-social bystander mm -hmm. through the workshops that we are organizing. Awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, I just had an idea while you you were uh, talking, Armand. Um, I guess it's really similar to conformity as well. This bystander effect sure. or uh, diffusion of responsibility. When you see others doing nothing, you also have the pressure to do nothing in a way. Um, Since we didn't kind of um, eliminate conformity, do, do you think it's really possible to eliminate bullying altogether or bystander effect altogether or no? I mean, it might not, but we should be positive about it to continue <laughs> our research for sure. There's sure. always hope. I mean, I'm, sh uh, I'm not like uh, 100% that we are able to stop bullying. Like you forever, know, from yeah. for uh, like for uh, <laughs> forever, but uh, I have a hope, you know, uh, to change some norms around bullying, mm -hmm. at least in some parts of the world. Let's say yeah. that because uh, there are many, many like bullying researchers, and most of the literature when we look, they mostly focused on the bully, at least the bullying literature, focused on the either bullies or the victims, mm -hmm. victims of sure. bullies. 
and uh, there's a really like recent shift towards understanding the bystander role and in what the about way. The yeah. mm-hmm. yes the first researcher who like came up with this bystander idea or the role of bystander is Samuvalli I guess mm-hmm. or like the uh, at least one of the first ones let's say in that way and I like listened one of her speech and she was like telling that uh, when she started her masters about this issue or her PhD uh, around 90s she was only found uh, like articles like 12 or 14 articles on that issue about bystanders oh, roles blah, blah, blah. Hmm? you said 3? Uh, 13 or 14, 13 yeah. or 14. Okay. I don't remember exact number but mm-hmm. just like you know uh, this shift towards understanding bystanders is kind of new, new area and most of the intervention studies also intervention programs also just involve the uh, factors related with the bullies, factors related with the victims. But recently, again, uh, most prominent anti-bullying intervention programs started to involve bystanders as well. And we are seeing the effect of those bystanders oh. in those programs at least. So right. we uh, we have uh, some hopes from those studies actually. Yeah, you you actually see the influence that you are making. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, but again, like as you uh, pointed out, the peer group norms are really, really important in that sense because we also have some studies that we manipulate peer group norms. So in some of studies, some of our studies, we manipulated in-group norms. Uh, either the like children in the study they know that their groups are going to be supportive for the uh, bullies or not supportive for the for the bullies, supportive for the challenger. So if there is a like challenging norm in their group versus if there is no challenging norm in their group, their responses differentiate actually. So they are more likely to be active bystanders if they hear that their group's peers in their groups also going to be challenged in the same way. Or if there is a norm in their group to be prosocial towards the victims of the bully, they are more likely to. Even like with such manipulation in an experimental design, we are finding this effect. So again, from those kind of research, I have some hopes about you know uh, the potential of reducing the bullying incidences through promoting like more active bystander responses. Yeah, I see. Um, and it's really good to see that you are making progress. And yeah, maybe it's not gonna be gone, but yeah, the small levels should be mm-hmm. should be better. Um, do you do you think about also lecturing the parents about this as well, or just intervention programs for the peers of the bullies and the mm-hmm. victims? The parents are very very big component of it too, because you know sometimes we are hearing from children that they are not intervening in those cases, mm-hmm. although they want to intervene because they tell us that their parents just warn them not to like involve any incidents, uh, yes. although they are showing they're going to show pro-social behaviors, but at the end of the day, they're going to be associated with that bullying incidents, right? So uh, they tell, they told us that like they, uh, their parents I actually be helpful, but I can't because yeah, because you know their their parents instructed them to be like not involved in any case. You know this classical Turkish <laughs> idioms as well. You know, just not involve <laughs> anything. Yeah, exactly that one. Yeah. 
again, like cultural norms sometimes also yeah. reflecting in the parental norms as well, right? So we're seeing that from the children's answers a lot. And I have some studies showing that uh, we just ask children's perceptions about their parents about this issue. So they also provide some insight that, you know, their perceptions about their parents mm -hmm. uh, for being either okay with them for being a challenger or not okay with them for being a challenger actually related to their bystander responses. We didn't collect data directly from parents, but there are also many studies. The perception of the children mm -hmm. is more important in this case. So I think I both can be important because, you know, uh, one of the limitations of my studies, I mostly uh, collected data only from the children themselves, but you know, for more comprehensive, more effective studies, we should be more uh, like collect data. We should collect data from different sources on the okay. same issue, like okay. children, parents, and maybe teachers at the same time in one study, mm -hmm. and then you can have a more com like complex picture of it. What makes that challenging for you then? Because you seem to think. Uh, that would be important as well. Yeah, I mean, there are some logistic challenges, of yes. course, uh, <laughs> while doing research in that area. Uh, so far, I'm mostly interested with children's judgments and motivations. But, you know, in the future studies, I'm also planning to involve both teachers and parents in the picture as well. Since I'm like seeing my from my studies that because the perceptions of their uh, about their parents' attitudes, about their peers' attitudes, and about like you know teachers' attitudes mm -hmm. actually related to their actual responses in the bullying cases. Since I'm seeing this link in my correlational studies, okay. uh, I'm actually planning like uh, in future studies to include the responses from parents and also from teachers as well. And like there are many, many studies actually showing this link too. So there are studies just collecting data from like teachers, from parents and understanding how this actually influenced children either be like bully, be, be victim or be bystander and how they're going to react as bystander. Um, okay, let's say I'm, I'm this uh, child stand or yeah, let's say my, my kid is either the victim of a bullying case or the, um, or the bully himself or the peer mm -hmm. of a bullying case. Um, what, so you are a parent, right? Yeah, what okay. should I do? <laughs> I mean, what should I say to the kid? What should, uh, how should I contribute in this case? Because if I really contribute, the might even increase. Uh, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Uh, one question that we got from parents a lot about bullying is that what I should do if my kid is bullied? Mm -hmm. They are not actually. We also want to hear from parents the question that you ask. Yeah. So, what if my child is, is the bully one? <laughs> yeah. Or what if my child observed the bullying cases a lot and they are not intervening in, in mm -hmm. that bullying? What we should do, what we, how we can promote. So, mm -hmm. we also want to hear from parents about those questions. But, but we mostly <laughs> hear about, you know, what if our child is victimized by their peers? So. I can totally understand the parents' concern in the yeah. issue, of course. Uh, but again, like the, uh, asking the other part of the questions are also important for us. Yeah, they should be more aware as well, for sure. That's why I asked about the intervention mm -hmm. for the uh, for the parents as well. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question from a parent's perspective, mm -hmm. uh, a parent actually should uh, talk about the child, should talk to the child about why bullying is morally not okay. Sure. Yeah. But it's not, uh, but like when I say morally is not okay, it's not actually enough for a child to understand why it's not okay, right? Mm -hmm. So they actually encourage children to be empathetic towards the victims of the bullying, right? Yes. Uh, that's also another important part. So just encourage them to mentalize about the, that person, mm -hmm. that peer who is actually got bullied yeah. by, the, by yeah. either their kids or either like by other kids, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's the part of like if their child is the bully or if their child actually uh, is the bystander who exposed those bullying events a lot, right? Mm -hmm. So if the parent asks, like, my child is bullied by the par by uh, his parents, but we should do, then the answer again, like, talk to the child about this issue, mm -hmm. just try it, because sometimes children, they, are, they actually don't talk about those issues with their parents or with their teachers, because they had a fear of talking, because they thought that if, if I'm going to talk to my parents about this, then my parents might try to find a solution, yes. and then uh, they might go to the teacher, and then, you know, uh, they have a kind of fear of retaliation, because if the bully has the consequences after, uh, like, the parents confronted with the teacher, confronted with the parents of the bully, then if the bully has the consequences, then, like, the bully might try to take retaliation. So, the child, the victim of the bully, like, the child might think in that way, right? Yeah. And they might just have a fear of, like, you know, talking about this issue. But there are some uh, cues that a child can give us about, like, that child is being bullied at school mm -hmm. or might experience bad things in school. If the child, like, you know, doesn't want to go to school, uh, suddenly or for no reason mm -hmm. if the child's like you know the grades if they're like you know those are more concrete cues that a parent can catch if their child is bullied at their school uh, the so, grades are dropping mm -hmm. all of a sudden yeah mm -hmm. sure. or their interest to go to the school uh, is yeah. like changing or sure. if they don't want to go to schools or you know sometimes they have this uh, after school clubs activities or you know class activities yeah. or like you know some informal meetings with their peers during the weekend so if the like children's interest or attention to attend those events with their peers suddenly decrease then there might be something there right so yeah, yeah. they should just uh, in a more elaborative way they should just ask children <laughs> without judging them right because sometimes parents also accuse their children of because being of being bullied, yeah, bullied, because how you can be that much powerless, you know? Uh, you should be power, like in power, mm -hmm. if they are doing this to you, you should be also doing this to them, blah, blah, blah. So such statement also make children to fear of speaking about the yeah, bullying incidents. So parents should be very careful about, you know, while talking about those mm -hmm. issues uh, and just encourage children to talk about if yeah. they experience this and should be in contact with the teachers and school managers. So, so the school and parent interactions is very important. Like teacher-parent dialogues and interactions is very, very helpful, very, very important because otherwise parents might actually miss many things that happening to children yeah. in the school environment. Like if they talk to their child, like teacher, they might actually 
like understand what's going on in that case and sometimes teachers might miss something and they actually the information coming from the parents might be helpful for teachers to actually recognize those incidents because some of the bullying forms are so like concrete are so uh, observable like the physical ones or the verbal ones but there are some forms of bullying those are like more obscure like mm -hmm. social exclusion or cyber bullying yeah. because you know it's happening in the online yeah. form and <laughs> yeah. teacher might not be able to recognize it mm -hmm. again social exclusion is a very very overt form of the bullying so it, the teacher might not be aware of it so like the interaction between teacher and parents are very important in that way um, that can be the next question itself so what should the teacher do? to catch cyberbullying or uh, to intervene with all the bullying cases that's happening in the class uh, and throughout the school. Uh, what should they do? Because it's it's a really hard responsibility because they are also teaching yes. for 40 exactly. minutes then they need to observe the children on yes. the little break, break they yeah. have. They had a lot to do, I mean, in their just daily life. Uh, schedule. Mm -hmm. We are going to schools to collect data and we're seeing how like teachers are very very busy with teaching and just trying to make their teaching strategies effective and you know keep to teaching strategies up to date as well because you know there yeah, are some generational generational change as well so it's so hard to keep attentions of especially like high school students in those days so they also need to adjust their teaching styles a lot so among all this it's so hard for them to also you know manage and regulate those kind of uh, like you know responses that's why it's actually important uh, making a more school-wide intervention program starting with the like teachers but also involving other parts of the uh, like school like school manager or like administrative staff as well and uh, again like you know uh, teachers with those workshops actually it's also much easier for teachers to catch on those things because again like just creating this awareness of the bullying right uh, help teachers to understand what's happening in that context because sometimes the teachers might also not understand that it's a bullying case, right? So they might just think, okay, they are just having fun with each other, right? So it's important in that sense. Again, some forms of bullying is more okay or more easy to catch for teachers as well. And also there is this perception of severity. So physical bullying always perceived as the more severe compared yeah. to other forms of the bullying. So they, most of the time, they're trying to intervene in the physical cases. So if a child kicking someone or like punching someone, they're trying to like stop this. Sure. And it's psychological. What the psychological one is kind of hiding it. So mm -hmm. psychological, like uh, in schools, there are psychological guidance teacher as well. Those are very helpful. Like those, uh, like the interactions of children with the psychological guidance teachers is very, very important. And again, like the interaction between those teachers with the other teachers, you know, uh, is important. So let's say I'm a class teacher of a class, and then I heard from my, from the psychological guidance teacher that there are some things happening in my classroom, right? Again, sometimes it's also not just good to label few students and just focus on that. Rather, let's say uh, the teachers can ask some help from school manager or from like psychological guidance teacher to just give a workshop 
to that classroom, to that uh-huh. you know, students about this issue. Without pointing yeah, out without labeling mm-hmm. those students. But of course, like they need to actually observe uh, again if this still continues, and just maybe like you know uh, privately talk of talk to those students who actually involved in such incidents. Mm-hmm. So again, interactions with those teachers is very very important since most of the most of the time they know about this conflict. Sure. Yeah. Then that means we need a lot of more of those guiders, right? We need more of them, we need more workshops or like more intervention mm-hmm. and just creating the awareness. As like we like most talk about the just uh, interpersonal bullying, mm-hmm. but there's also uh bias based bullying that we call that if children are noticing are bullied because of their group membership. Oh, yeah. That's actually put another layer. Mm-hmm. to the problem and make it yes. more complex. Uh, if, for example, someone is bullied because of their refugee background, because of their immigration, because of their religion, mm-hmm. because of their sexual okay. orientation, yes. etc. Sometimes I have this mental, like, there is this perception of, you know, if the bullying is happening because of this, I mean, they already deserve this. Uh, such treatment. So there's all the bias in it, right? Mm-hmm. Because there are many biases towards like refugee people, immigrant people, or LGBT like uh, people. So like those biases also actually uh, both at this like you know student level, but at also at the teacher level actually influence their motivation to recognize the bullying incidents yes. and like effectively intervene in that bullying behavior, right? So. Yeah. That's also put another dimension in. So we should be very careful about while designing or while making those intervention programs. Mm-hmm. Sometimes like very general intervention programs might not be effective That's when true. it comes to specific types of bullying. Mm-hmm. Especially if this bullying happening because of some biases, you know, some group yeah. membership uh, reasons. So again, it's another part of the story. Yeah. If that's the that's involved, it's even harder to approach this time because this time the teachers and the parents' attitude towards these issues really matter and mm-hmm. harder to control definitely. Um, I'm gonna shift the topic a little bit now. Sure, go ahead. Um, <laughs> in your uh, early academic years, were there any books, papers, or authors that particularly inspired you? or shape their approach to psychology? I mean, this is uh, a kind of a classical question where people ask, if you take a psychologist, who would you sit with? Who would mm-hmm. you talk to? Who would you take your best friend as? Yeah. Uh, I remember I really uh, influenced by Thomas Ellos' work. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a like, great researcher, great professor. Uh, he works on like cooperation and he also like this summer on anthropology so uh, I remember like how I'm impressed uh, after reading his articles on corporations and more pro-social behavior and also again like just uh, his like theory also influenced me a lot uh, in my uh, thinking like how the both social cognitive factors and also motivation to use those social cognitive factors can be important in many different like trying to understand in many different behaviors uh, in different intergroup contexts so, but it was, it was you know, after uh, starting my PhD, I really influenced by uh, his research. 
Uh, another like researcher, terrorist, is actually uh, I shouldn't forget his name. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, the best of us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I'm teaching this in social, like in developmental psychology class, a lot. The, uh, uh, like talks called Cheerios, hmm? Alien Cheerios, uh, uh, moral development. Okay. Like he's a great researcher as well. Uh, I'm studying like you know moral development and how social cognitive skills influence children's moral judgments and moral behaviors, and we can categorize the bystander response under the moral behaviors as well, right? And then Elliot is actually come with up this theory of how children and adolescents might actually balance their thinking uh, in moral considerations and also some social and conventional considerations as well. Mm. Because sometimes in some contexts children think about more morally and come up with some more moral justification, but this is not the uh, case for most of the time. They also sometimes provide more social and conventional reasoning. For example, if you ask a child why you did something or why you did something morally wrong, so for example, why you just punched your uh, or kicked your friends, mm -hmm. and then if they say, uh, or if you ask like why it's not okay to kick someone, let's ask in that way, if they say because uh, it's harmful for them, because I don't want that my I don't want my friends to feel sad, then we are actually here, or if they say it's not fair to do this to someone, right? We are then can uh, understand that it's actually referring more moral reasoning. Versus yes. they might just say that okay, because my teacher told me that it uh, shouldn't yeah. be okay to <laughs> kick someone. It's yeah. more conventional and social norms, right? Children's referring here. So Turiel, like uh, he's a he was a student of Kolbein actually, which is like big name in moral psychology. Okay. Turiel came up with this uh, theory of social domain theory that actually there are three different domains that children can consider while making moral judgments. So they can consider the moral concerns mm -hmm. like fairness, justice, yeah, the deepest. Mm -hmm. okay. the like human rights, etc. Yeah. or like you know their psychological well-being yeah. or they might just consider the social norms mm -hmm. right? or conventional norms or they might just give some personal reasoning like it's uh, her decision to do this so it's like her personal choice to do this so kind of more uh, at the personal domain they also come up with this idea of you know like uh, he's an autonomous uh, person so he can decide whatever he wants uh -huh. so he can either do like he can either kick someone or you know uh, or he can just behave more so when, when I ask them why, do, why don't you kick someone they say mm -hmm. I don't want to and if I would I would yeah, mm -hmm. okay. that's kind of the autonomous part of it, right? Mm -hmm. So I also influence a lot by Trio's approach in mm -hmm. my research because we also try to understand because Trio also suggests that uh, it's not just uh, categorical ways of looking to moral judgments mm -hmm. because children also simultaneously can use both moral concerns and also social conventional concerns. Mm -hmm. And this the intergroup parts comes to the picture because we can see that like if the like uh, the victimized peer is your in-group member, you might more refer to the moral concerns, while the victimized group is an uh, out-group member, you might just come up with some conventional and social uh, reasoning. So, so you can, in like, case you are in, the, in a specific part of the domains. Mm -hmm. okay. So there are like not solid lines between those domains uh -huh. and 
you can like simultaneously use your, those domains in different contexts differently. So if you're using social conventional domain in one question or in one context, okay. it doesn't mean that you are actually not able to use your moral reasoning. Uh, yes. Because in some contexts you might not be motivated to use your moral reasoning, just make your justification based on the social and conventional domain. Okay. So like Trill is also a big name in my, uh, although I couldn't remember his name at the very <laughs> beginning, he's a very, very important name for my research. And he's a very different background actually. He uh, was a, uh, his mother uh, is a Turkish, was a Turkish woman. And his father, I think is a Jewish, uh, Jewish person. And he was born in the Rhodes Islands. And then uh, there was a, uh, that's uh, like mistreatments of the, uh, to the Jewish members back then uh, when he was born and they were able to uh, run the road silent just uh, because of his mother's Turkish identity. A Turkish soldier helped them to run the road silent. Uh, and then they came to Izmir while he was a child and they stayed there for a few years and then they immigrated to Canada uh, and then to US so he is a really really like nice uh, like a, a different history in that mm -hmm. sense and uh, he also like explained uh, how he actually uh, interested in understanding moral judgments because he actually so a lot of uh, different things while he was a child in terms of the like moral context and how people actually can forget about all the moral values, you know. Uh, Just at because some you are labeled as Jewish. Or yeah, mm -hmm. yes. exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very very big struggles. Um, <laughs> I I don't know to stop again. Sure, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, what advice would you give to um, to psychologists? This, that are going to be psychologists mm -hmm. or students who are inspired by your work and wish to delve into similar research areas. Um, do you have anything in mind? Uh, many advice actually. Okay. So just involving in the research uh, as much as they can do, it's very important because it shows you whether you're really interested in that area yeah. or not. So it's very important. Uh, to like just involve in the lab settings and just involve in different research and just try to explore your research ideas and I think the best way is to understand whether you really have a nice uh, or whether you have a real uh, interest in that research area is to understand if you are coming up with new research questions while you are already designing a research or while you are already like conducting a research if you like your brain is just not stopping and just producing new research idea on that issue, that means actually you're really interested in that research area. So involving in research is very, very helpful. Uh, even before masters, you know, even during undergrads, uh, it's very important to involve in that research. While for masters students, uh, so you're asking for the psychology students already, right? Not for the students well, who wish to go to psychology. All of them. For uh, undergrads and for high school students, or even like another another program in bachelor's mm -hmm, as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, also, like, you know, like for the uh, students who just want to study psychology, but uh, if they like are if they are uh, hesitant about, you know, it's a good 
uh, area for me. Mm-hmm. There are many uh, different areas of psychology actually, because we're saying sure. psychology, most of the time people think about clinical psychology area. Mm-hmm. But there are many, many different areas of psychology, yes. like developmental, cognitive, like you know, neuroscience, like mm-hmm. uh, social psychology, like yeah, all those different types of research yeah. areas. And they all have intersecting uh, intersections with each other, yeah. right? So understanding they are all related to each other because sometimes students also having some difficulties I'm like well, what social psychology and developmental psychology uh, yes. what should I do? Two interests. Yeah, like two <laughs> interests. And there's always a way to merge those two interests, right? Like look at my research areas, yeah. right? Most of the things that I'm like, you know, studying the prejudice, discrimination, all those things are actually kind of under the social psychology area, right? I'm adapting or like, you know, uh, stealing those concepts from social psychology and adapting to developmental psychology literature and just applying those like uh, things in my studies and studying those issues with children and adolescents, let's say. So there's always ways to like make those intersections. So uh, and also like not just limited to within psychology, but you know between the other disciplinary areas also there are always some uh, potential things that they can find. So if they're interested, let's say media, there's a media psychology, right? Yeah. It's a huge area that they can actually or like there's a like very very uh, like clear links between psychology and like economy, like okay. psychology and politics, yes. right? So there's like huge uh, kind of applica- area. yeah application area. So they just need to explore mm-hmm. which area that they are interested in more. And again, uh, after exploring their research area, involving research a lot, also involving maybe like conferences. Uh, those are also important. Yeah just to increase their presence in the area as well, making some like networks, also helpful for them to learn new areas, you know, just attending conferences, talks, and other advice for them uh, to actually understand their like real interests. Those are... We can maybe also uh, promote Sogelab of yours here. (laughs) Uh, Can you mention the project and group a little bit? Mm So we have the SOGELAB uh, called the Social Gelişim Laboratory at Bicat. Uh, we use like Turkish names to actually attract parents and children's <laughs> involvement uh, because of this. Yeah, in our lab we're studying. You're also uh, part of this lab as well. So uh, correct me if I miss something. Okay. So we are studying uh, group processes and also social cognitive skills of children and adolescents and how those two things are interacting uh, while we're understanding the children's moral judgments and behaviors mm-hmm. in uh, different types of settings. One of them is the intergroup settings that we call as like if there's an outgroup and in-group uh, complexity in the peer groups, uh-huh. how their response is going to change. One of my research areas about understanding prejudice and attitudes towards refugees. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did many studies back in the US and England about understanding prejudice and discrimination towards immigrants uh-huh. in the US and in the England. And then after I came to Turkey, I started interested in like how children and uh, adolescents' attitudes towards refugees might influence their behaviors, their social behaviors or their moral judgments in those contexts. So whether they have the same motivation to help a victimized refugee peer compared to a victimized Turkish peer, let's say. And also I'm interested in different other intergroup contexts, like if someone is being bullied because of sexual orientation mm-hmm. uh, or because of disability, 
uh, as well. So, like as a huge group, uh, both undergrads and grad students and myself, we are doing a lot of studies, mm-hmm. understanding the like pro-social behaviors, bystander responses in different types of uh, bullying cases. Yeah. We also do. Uh, we also have some studies about. Uh, as again more uh, pro-social aspects of uh, development, uh, trying to understand how we can promote children's civic engagement in social issues, societal and environmental uh, issues. Yes. And it's about more understanding how we can actually make children an active, uh, like active part of the community that they live in and yeah. how they can actually realize that they have the power to change something in their societies when they saw a problem. So of those course. problems can be related to the environmental issues or it can be related to like women rights or oh, yes. gender uh, inequ- like gender uh, equity or gender uh, like uh, inequality. Mm-hmm. So how they can actually raise their voices and how they can be a like active uh, promoter of those uh, like yeah. human rights in general. So we're also having some studies to understand not only the dark side of the uh, like human being, like you know prejudice discrimination, but also trying to understand the social aspect of it too. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Um, um, in your research on bystander intervention in response to bullying. What were the most significant factors that um, kind of stopped uh, bullying or stopped stopped mm-hmm. bystander effects? Mm-hmm. Um, other than I don't know, other than challenging, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, I mean, we must talk about few of them. Like the peers are important. Peer uh-huh. norms are important. Awareness Parents, of the peers yes, is important. Exactly. Uh-huh. Parents are very important, uh, and then again, teachers' beliefs are very important. We didn't talk about like the children's own cognitive skills or own like ah, social yes. cognitive parts. So again, we know that tier of mind is one of the important uh, social cognitive skills for children, and we found that most of the time, children with higher tier of mind abilities are showing like more active responses. Uh-huh. Empathy is another very correlated to tier of mind. Is another stronger predictor of their defending behavior. Behaviors in mm-hmm. that sense. So again, children with higher empathy they are more likely to show uh, pro-social behavior. Justice sensitivity is another part of it. So if they have a higher justice sensitivity, they are more likely to show pro-social behaviors in that context. Justice sensitivity means that how they're going to feel if they observe someone uh, like being uh, un- like being treated unfairly or in a like unjust way. So whether how they are going to feel about that situation, so whether they have a higher sense of justice sensitivity. Sure. Uh, other things like, you know, critical consciousness is another component of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else? So we also know that age is an important factor. There are mixed results about age, but uh, what most of the research is found that children like middle uh, school age children they are more likely to show pro-social behaviors mm-hmm. compared to high school students yeah. in some of the bullying cases and this can be explained by the importance of peer group norms so sometimes children or adults in the high school they might have a higher fear of retaliation and they just because of that they kind of you know have a sense of not like staying passive and not being active because especially if the bully is from their peer groups. So if the especially bully is a popular figure, 
just to be associated with the bully, they might just stay passive. So age another factor. Sometimes finding some gender differences for so females are more to uh, like uh, proactively intervene compared to male mm -hmm. students. Uh, those are kind of more individual at the individual level differences. It's it's really interesting to me that um, even the most intuitive results like age being a factor is not is giving mixed results by the studies. How is that possible? And um, I don't know why does this occur. Mm -hmm. So if you're studying, uh, like if you're considering context in your research, mm -hmm. it's sometimes so uh, usual to have some mixed results because when you change something in the context, mm -hmm. then actually you mean uh, like you're actually changing uh, many dynamics in that peer group, mm -hmm. right? So for example, we're finding that children uh, and adolescents are differentiated in their responses mm -hmm. in the context of bias-based bullying, let's say, but you might not find the same differences if you're studying the interpersonal, interpersonal context. Mm -hmm. Or if, you change, if you're changing the group memberships of the victim, right? Or yeah. group membership of the bully. If you say that the bully is a close friend of yourself, yeah. then we might find that shift between children and adolescents. Sure. So because in adolescents we know that peer group norms are matter more, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, if you change peer group norms, let's say, right? If you are saying that your peers are supportive okay. of the bully, or if you're, like, your peers are supportive of the challengers, mm -hmm. then you might find that adolescents are more susceptible to those peer group norms, mm -hmm. and when they read that their groups uh, are supportive of the challenger, they might more likely to report pro-social bystander responses compared to middle school children who are less susceptible to those peer group norms, let's I say. See. And we sometimes see that parents' norms might be more important for the middle school children compared to high school children, or teacher norms might matter for more matter for uh, the middle school children because for the adolescents they also feel have that autonomous you know, self in themselves and they might feel that, okay, my parents might think that way but I don't care about their thinking, right? So, <laughs> yes. this kind of idea of being autonomous from your parents, from your teachers, is kind of uh, higher in high school compared to middle school. So, if you change something there, then you might actually find different age-related patterns, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, in your experiments, you are uh, kind of uh, coming up with scenarios where a bullying case occurs or other cases occur, but um, sometimes it feels like even if you change it, littlest aspect of the story, the results might differ by a lot. Mm -hmm. um, did you ever had this had such a case, or um, just small differences doesn't really matter? So most of the case, uh, it depends on your research question. So if you want to manipulate something and if you want to see how your manipulation is going to affect the outcome measure, mm -hmm. that's one of the things that you actually would expect to see in your results, yeah. right? Because you're but manipulating something. I am specifically talking about like, um, by little change I mean like a little word choice, a little... Um, mm -hmm. Like it's something you wouldn't really expect to make to make a difference, but mm -hmm. it does. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sometimes it happens. So, for example, uh, in the bias-based bullying scenario, so we mostly use hypothetical scenarios and just to understand children and adolescents' reasoning in those hypothetical scenarios, right? Yeah. 
So for example, in bias based bullying scenarios, that you have two options. So either you can just specify the reason of the bullying. So for example, a refugee child is bullied because of the refugee background, right? Okay. You can actually specify this in your story. For example, you might say that the excluder, the bully, might tell the other students, like the refugee student, we don't want you in our group because you are from somewhere else, you are different. You might explicitly state this, right? Uh-huh. Or you might just say, like, a refugee child is being like excluded uh-huh. by the group without specifying any reason, yeah. right? And you can uh, ask children to come up with some reasons, like what, what what can be the reason of this bullying, right? Uh-huh. So this is like two ways of uh, making this, right? Uh, and we can see some differences based on how we are wording those stories, right? It's actually minimal difference, right? Sure. Either we are giving the reason explicitly mm-hmm. or we are just giving the group membership of the victim and we are not specifying any reasons, right? Sure. Behind it. But children might automatically think about the reason as the group membership because it's the salient characteristics of that victim, right? And we might find some differences because uh, the, for the explicit ones, mm-hmm. it might be perceived as a more severe uh. case, right? Because it's actually being explicitly racist being said, towards yes. someone, right? Uh-huh. In the other way, it's more indirect ways, mm-hmm. unspoken ways, to make someone feel excluded, uh-huh. but not specifying you're excluding because you're a refugee, right? Mm-hmm. So this can be perceived as more severe and children can be more uh, like more yeah more empathetic or also it depends on their biases. Uh. <laughs> they can be less empathetic if they know the reason more uh. because if they already have heightened negative bias towards that specific group. But such minimal change actually make a huge uh, change in children's perceptions about that story. Yeah. Of course. Um, mm. What else can be done in order to utilize the findings of many um, utilizing finding of these research that you have been conducting so far? Um, what can university students do, for example, um, other than just maybe standing on a board and giving it somewhat um, boring lecture? Mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, I mean, many things can be done, of course. Uh, so there are some uh, more changes can be done at the individual level and there are also some changes should be done at the more macro level, more societal level, mm-hmm. educational policy level. Okay. Those are the parts that <laughs> unfortunately we are not uh, that much uh, yeah, have a power to change yes. it, right? Yes. Of course, in, with our results, we're trying to uh, give some implications and some insights uh-huh. to those policymakers. But sometimes the links between academia and the like policy uh, makers policy. can be a little bit strong, I guess. strong or uh-huh. it, it might be like a little bit weak uh, uh-huh. in most of the parts. It's not specific to, of course, Turkey case, but you uh-huh. know, in most of the places we have this issue. Normally, how does how should it work? Um, Let's say they. Uh, how do you contact the policymakers, and what do you exactly tell to them? Mm-hmm. So, if actually, like in ideal world, after mm-hmm. you having your results from your study, mm-hmm. uh, you also have some implications of your. After you interpreting your results, you have some implications 
coming up from those interpretations of your results, right? Mm -hmm. And you can just uh, disseminate those implications and your research study results to both at the, like individual level, to the schools, to the mm -hmm. teachers, to the students mm -hmm. as well, to the parents as well that's involved in your study, mm -hmm. or just like general audience, right? Uh, although they are not involved in your study, you can yeah. just distribute those results to those schools who actually wants to take advantage of it, right? Also, at the more macro level, you might, at the policy level, sorry, you might inform, let's say, Minister of Education about your results, right? Because you are conducting this research and you have some findings that actually shows you, like, if you uh, promote children's fear of mind, their empathy, you can actually improve their pro-social bystander responses to the finding. Or if you reduce prejudice and discrimination in children, then you're also finding some like uh, positive results in terms of promoting pro-social bystander responses to bias-based bullying, let's say. Okay? So you can also uh, disseminate those results to the Minister of Education. I'm just talking in my case, right? So there, like, you know, uh, there are many different uh, policymaker agents for different types of yeah, yeah. research, so just speaking of my case. research, yeah. Sure. And then uh, you might just want them to, you know, respond to you or you, you know, just to make or some changes in those like uh, policies or just use your research results to actually uh, change something uh, in schools or incorporate your results to do, let's say, curriculum. That's the like ideal world, right? Yes. It's a great thing to do. So if there is a, let's say, uh, a class or a workshop that should be like, you know, uh, all the students can attend those like lectures or workshops in the school's environment. If it's like, uh, if they actually force schools to conduct those workshops, okay. let's say that would be great either adding the curriculum or like you know as a compulsory thing to do so those kind of things that we can do as a researcher mm -hmm. but of course sometimes there are some uh, parts that we might not uh, able to do it uh, sometimes you know um, the researcher might not have enough motivation to disseminate those results because uh, to do like policy to policy makers mm -hmm. because sometimes they know that although they're like they can do it it's not going to change anything, uh, so they might just use their time to actually make publications, like scientific publication, which is a big part of disseminate your, your results as well, because, you know, uh, in, this, in, in science, uh, for other scientists, other researchers to learn about your research, mm -hmm. is only the way to publish your research or, you know, present your research in conferences yes, that your colleagues attend, right? Mm -hmm. sure. So that's the one part of disseminating your research results with the academics, with the academics who are interested in your research, right? And there's also like the public that we are mentioning, like the parents, students, teachers, schools, etc. And then the, we have the policymakers. So there are different ways of disseminating your research results, and sometimes we are more motivated to like use few ways, you know, uh, because you might just think that it's about self-efficacy, right? <laughs> whether you have the power to change something in the policymakers, whether you should actually use your time to do this or use your time to like do other things that you also think that it can be more uh, helpful for the science or helpful for the teachers. Did you ever write such a curriculum uh, based on your findings? 
or you are not yet. One of those <laughs> <laughs> not yet, because you know, uh, I just came back to Turkey one and a half year ago, so I'm uh-huh. still kind of at the phase of conducting uh-huh. my research. We just finished one exactly. of data collection for one of my research, so we still have time. Like I still need some time to actually interpret the results of the data yeah, and then come up with some suggestions. Of course, after this. I'm going to uh, present the report to both the like uh, Minister of Education mm-hmm. because we are actually taking their uh, approval before we start the collecting data from the school. Oh, yes. So we're going to report uh, our findings to Minister of Education. We're going to report our findings to schools and we're also offering some workshops to schools if they're interested in. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, uh, the key thing is motivation. Thank so. You. Sometimes researchers might have the motivation, but schools might not have the motivation yes. because, as we talked before, there are many things that they should do, and sometimes those peer relationships, social uh, aspect of the children's and adolescents development mm-hmm. can be the second, third, fourth priority yes. in school life. The academic part of school being more uh, prioritized by the like, teachers, by school managers which also can be understandable and then like those aspects, those peer relations aspects can be like third, fourth, seventh, oh, yeah. you know, at, in the priority list. So sometimes it also influences like school's motivation to take like involved in such uh, workshops because... So you're also taking, getting a lot of declines. Yeah, yeah, of course, sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, just conducting the study as well. So we're, Like approach many schools and they just don't wanna uh, spend their time right. in it because uh, sometimes again like the academic priorities can be like more important uh, from their perspective so they might not have enough motivation to sure. conduct those research in their schools so those are kind of difficulties that we are facing but we're trying to find some solutions as well you know just giving some uh, or increasing their motivations uh, <laughs> and just showing them how the students are going to benefit from our studies as well. Because, you know, at the end of the day, they're also contributing to science, right? A sure. child and, and an adolescent uh, will be a college students in few years, and they're like learning about doing science or just participating in scientific research. Oh, yeah. So it's also an uh, experience for that kid, right? Okay. So it's, they're just trying to uh, motivate uh, schools at different aspects. Mm-hmm. But you know, sometimes when you're studying such sensitive issues, uh, there are different barriers, right? Because sometimes not for them to have a motivation uh, to be involved in a scientific research, but uh, rather the topic of that scientific research can be a barrier itself. So like bullying research, right? So sometimes can think that, okay, if we are doing bullying research, if we are accepting to do a bullying research, Our parents might think that the bullying is a really, really serious issue in our school, which is true, but they don't want to accept it and they don't want to involve in this because they sometimes I'm just hearing like, you know, from school manager that, okay, bullying is a huge problem, but we don't have bullying, bullying problem in our school. Yeah. Most of the time, not correct, if you ask with, like children in that school. Uh, so the bullying like topic itself sometimes is the barrier uh, for us to like you know motivate schools because if you're going to schools and if you're saying that we're going to like you know increase children's civic engagement in environmental issues, uh-huh. they're more friendly towards those topics uh, yeah. because it's the more social aspect of it, right? Uh-huh. So it's uh, also important to show the pro-social aspect of 
uh, stopping the bullying also important mm-hmm. to uh, like deliver those messages supposed to convince them. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, people don't think about actually this research can help the help the children to overcome bullying cases. Mm-hmm. They just want to sweep sweep it under the rug so that they don't know this school has bullying has some cases. But of course, there are going to be some cases because these are children and they don't know yet. So yeah, they sh- they should be at some point open to these suggestions and little interpretations of us. But yeah, we'll I guess see. it will happen at some point. I'm still hopeful. <laughs> I'm always hopeful about this. Uh, how fast is the system, even when they accept your offer of conducting the research? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it fast enough or lagging behind? Uh, there are several steps that you need to take while doing a study with a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you're collecting data from schools or from like parents by yeah. snowball sampling. If you're collecting data from a child or from an adolescent, basically someone who like who is under 18 years of age, mm-hmm. you should actually take the parental consent, so parental approval. So for the school case, first we were taking the ethics approval and then we're applying the Minister of Education. After getting the approval, we are able to approach the schools and introduce our study to the school manager. Mm-hmm. If the school manager says okay to our study, then we're distributing the consent forms to the children and adolescents mm-hmm. at the specific age range that we are interested, and we are given at least like one week or two week for them to like take this parental consent form to mm-hmm. home, and we are allowing parents like we are giving enough time for parents to read those consent forms. Mm-hmm. In the consent forms, we're basically giving our the details of our study and what we are going to do in this study mm-hmm. if they uh, allow their children to participate in the study. Then we're asking children to like bring back those consent forms mm-hmm. after a certain time. And then after collecting those consent forms, we are actually coming up with teachers and school manager and we are trying to arrange a common time Mm-hmm. with the uh, like uh, children who have their parental consent forms and they're also trying to not to inter- interrupt their uh, daily academic activities that mm-hmm. much so we're trying to capture the times if yeah. the class is let's say uh, empty so like mm-hmm. if there is no class in that hour in that hour or you know uh, just trying to not inter- like interrupting their daily academic schedule as well so it's a little bit taking your time to make all those arrangements, arrangements. Mm-hmm. but you know if everything goes smoothly then you're able to collect data uh, let's say from a school in 20 days oh, after you get your perfect. approvals from the minister of education that's actually better than i thought so mm-hmm. yeah um, I have a question about uh, your uh, attitude towards the children because um, when you conduct a lot of studies with them, you see their good side and the bad side too. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, is it fun to do research with children still or <laughs> I don't know? <laughs> I really enjoy doing research with children and adolescents. I also do some research in those areas with adults too, with college mm-hmm. students too, because those are the things that we are also seeing at the college level, like yes. social exclusion. Yeah. I have specific studies on social exclusion of different gender uh, st- 
students from STEM classes or yeah, from, let's say, literature classes. So I also do some studies around this issue with college students, but most of my studies with children and adolescents, and I really enjoyed it. And I, like, from after each study, I learned a lot from children and adolescents. So there are many things to explore. And it's really like sometimes open my eyes and open my mind and also give some re new research ideas. Most of my studies I'm using like surveys and hypothetical scenarios and I'm asking children to evaluate, let's say, whether it's morally wrong or okay or like how they evaluate the situation, let's say from one to six, they're giving a response. And yes. then we also ask them some open-ended questions, like why questions, why do you think so? From those responses, from those questions, we're taking some open-ended responses, which is really fun to read sometimes and also very disappointing to read sometimes, since yeah. we are dealing with some biases as well. Uh, but of course, like those reasonings is actually providing a lot of information for me to think about future research and like how their reasoning shifts across contexts how they are reasoning shifting based on age. Mm -hmm. So there are many things to explore uh, in their thinking. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not uh, approaching children and adolescents as a different, like, they're just humans, right? So, like, they're just... And also always uh, helpful for me to think about that we are also we were also a child, uh, yeah. right? So those are not the areas that we are not familiar with it, so we are all familiar with those areas, right? Uh, so it's also so fun to examine, like go back and examine those areas as well, because you also sometimes just thinking about yourself when yeah. you are a child, or if you if you were a child, how you think about this issue back then, so blah blah. So such kind of questions also uh, helpful for me to continue with this research with children. Again. Uh, it's not boring to me. Uh, yeah, I yeah. wouldn't think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it might be frustrating. Many, so. <laughs> there are many things to explore. Uh -huh. and it's also understandable. I mean, uh, you, I'm facing up with many biases coming from children and adolescents, mm -hmm. but I'm always trying to be not judgmental of those yeah. biases because it's so clear uh, that there are some sources or there are some mechanism behind those biases, right? Mm -hmm. As a scientist, our duty is just to understand what are those mechanisms and what we can do to actually improve those mechanisms, right? Or to like uh, understand those mechanisms to improve those mechanisms. So uh, it's always fun to explore those issues. Although I'm studying the dark side of the human <laughs> being mostly, it's again uh, providing a lot of information to understand, to talk with the children and adolescents themselves. Because sometimes just with the book knowledge, we might not think about many things that they are considering now. And again, like uh, with the technology, like many, like many new developments, their thinking also is changing, and their perspective to looking at some aspects also changing. So you also need to just listen to them, right? So I'm just trying to do more uh, in involving more qualitative part to my research as well to just listen to them. Yeah. yeah, that's that's really well put. Um, in your research on intergroup attitudes towards immigrants and refugees, what are the key challenges and opportunities for fostering an inclusive society during childhood and adolescence? Um, if a clear working method is implemented, I guess no one would complain 
However, of course, it's not very easy to convince everyone and progress takes considerable time, especially in this case. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any insights to foster this inclusive society? Yes, I mean, uh, again, just uh, coming up from my research, the first part is just creating inclusive schools, right? Mm -hmm. To achieve inclusive societies because those children and adolescents will be the next generations of adults and yeah. then uh, and if they are not educated correctly things will go wrong exactly yeah. I mean they are going to have these attitudes uh, with them uh -huh. and then after they you know started to their jobs let's say they might have the uh, same issues with bullying of uh, colleagues yeah. this time right so schools like creating inclusive schools are very important and also we should consider the history of this country with the diversity mm -hmm. so we do have a lot of diversity in this country but again with time uh, there are different ways of or different contexts that actually diversity increase in a sense recent years right mm -hmm. so again just considering the history of this uh, country and just making some adaptations to the maybe like you know curriculum uh -huh. might be helpful right to create the inclusive societies uh, again starting from more individual level changing children's socio-cognitive skills would be helpful to promote pro-social behavior and being inclusive is important in that sense right uh, is one of the pro-social behavior that we should promote, like being inclusive for everyone. <laughs> so starting with social cognitive skills of children, then we have families uh, approach to diversity. So they should allow their children to actually uh, hanging out with their peers from diverse backgrounds, right? This is yeah. one of the important aspects of it too. And then after this, like neighborhoods or maybe peer norms becomes important. Teacher, so I'm just—I <laughs> feel I'm just, you know, uh, making the Rothenbrenner ecological model here <laughs> with different levels. So, uh, but again, like uh, creating inclusive societies, started creating individuals or promoting individuals. individuals yes, individuals like inclusive behaviors. For the schools especially, it's so important. I mean, those are can be also adapted to the other context, but just coming up with some, uh, let's say, uh, events or class or practices that can be inclusive for everyone in the school environment. And also just focusing on the similarities rather than differences because if we put the f our focus on similarities, they can, children actually can easily understand and just uh, giving them some opportunity to, to have some common goals. Let's say we have like a refugee child and a non-refugee child, right? But they are living in the same environment. Although they have come in from different backgrounds, they are living in the same environment right now. So if you provide some common goals to those children, let's say to make a project, a collaborative project on environment, because they are living in the same environment, like right? So after they like uh, have this common goal, they actually start uh, to collaborate yeah, with each other. So they cooperate with each other to achieve this common goal, right? So this is very important uh, to actually be inclusive because probably after this opportunity, they are going to realize that they are very yeah, similar to each other yes. rather than they are differences, right? So uh, creating that is very important. Like creating those opportunities for children to attend is very important. 
for them to just focus on the similarities rather than the differences as one aspect of it. Uh, oh, sure, sure, sure. Go ahead. Uh, and again, like you know, when we think about the intergroup relations, it's actually two-way situation, right? So we're always thinking about the majority perspective towards minoritized youth, minoritized children, mm -hmm. but there is also minoritized youth perceptions about majority youth. So sometimes the like majority youth might also perceive that okay, those minoritized youth they also just like to hang out with each other, right? So uh, can yes. also focus on that part too. So you mm -hmm. you know. They like us, we like us, so then there is no we and they, right? So yeah. if they know this idea, so the main thing is just removing they and we and making okay. this us. So it's just coming up from they and we perspective to coming to the like us point. And to do that is we should consider like two way streets mm -hmm. of the integral relation. Projects means, makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. um, but when the, since the issue is highly politicized in Turkey, Yes. How how do you? Mm -hmm. There needs to be some individual uh, individual efforts to make this right because we are not getting much help from the the other parts. Uh, how do you how do you think these like if if the parents think the issue is politicized? What should the if if the parents think otherwise? About the towards attitudes mm -hmm. towards refugees, how could the teacher shift the children's attitudes, for example, or other other way around? Mm -hmm. um, do you? I think the human rights is one of the common point here, just mm -hmm. to you know uh, increase empathy in like uh, towards human rights mm -hmm. and just creating this awareness of fairness and justice. Sure. One part, of course, it might not be possible to change everything attitudes, right? Mm -hmm. If especially they have like a lot of like high negative attitudes, mm -hmm. but just uh, like correcting the misconceptions about those issues because there are also a lot of misconceptions that people buy it from the media or from the like other resources. So just trying to correct those misconceptions mm -hmm. sometimes helpful for uh, individuals to change their attitudes. And just people can meet at the like common point of human rights, and this can be a glue like between uh, in the society, uh, and most of the time it's uh, helpful and useful to change those attitudes. But of course, uh, like we should be optimistic, but at the same time realistic, right? So. Uh, from the optimistic perspective, it's very important and we should always have the hope, but from the realistic perspective, we also should accept that we cannot change everyone's attitude toward sure. that uh, thing. So, we should be actually just trying to our best to change something, both at the individual level, both at the like, you know, structural and more macro level. And of course, everyone has different roles, different responsibilities in that, right? As a researcher, my job is just to understand and explore those patterns and understanding those things, you know, and just have a more concrete picture of understanding what's going on like here and what are the mechanisms that we might uh, improve or we might change. Mm -hmm. And then distributing this to the like related agencies 
and then just waiting them to actually make some change because sometimes it might not be possible to like uh, work at both sides right so you have to uh, you have to do your job in the best way then just uh, waiting or hoping to uh, for someone's doing their jobs in a best way uh-huh. that's way that we can i mean you can think of a puzzle you know there are different parts of a puzzles yeah, and sometimes you know uh, if we are not combining those puzzles together they can be meaningless right so like everyone should contribute at their side yeah, and we can so have a, like more comprehensive picture mm-hmm. but it might not be always that much easy right It's good that you mentioned media. Um, media is right now affecting attitudes negatively towards refugees, I guess. Um, but how would you reverse this and make it positive? What kind of um, what kind of media representations should uh, those people include? to make the attitudes better towards refugees? Um, I mean, this is a very dynamic uh, context right now and we can see the like shifts in uh, individuals' attitudes day by day. Sometimes an, like, an event happens and we can see like huge negativity towards uh-huh. this issue. Sometimes we are seeing more positive approach towards this issue. So it's a very, very dynamic approach, dynamic context, sorry. And uh, again, media has a lot of influence in it. So media shouldn't create the misconceptions about this issue at the first place, because those misconceptions is like have a higher likelihood of uh, yes, staying in mind, and you know people are just buying those misinformations without uh, checking it whether it's correct or not. So first, the media should stop to like just uh, like give those misinformation, misconceptions. And then again, like the media is important to also promote the human rights, right? Especially the social media, like not the uh, traditional media sources, but right now the social media sources are very, very important for individuals to create this awareness of the human rights, like basic human rights. So. This is another way of like how we can use media to actually because you might like familiar with the activist movements in the social media about some events after that happened. So people are sharing posts and you know uh, let's say the latest war, right? So we're seeing a lot of posts and through those posts again the awareness of this issue and awareness of the human rights violations becomes even like uh, more obvious after uh, we're seen in the media. So, I mean, me, like most of the factors that we talked here, media can be a useful tool, others a detrimental tool too. So it yes, depends so on how you're using it. So again, like all the things, the like parents impact, it can be a very useful tool, mm-hmm. but also it can be a detrimental tool, right? Exactly. Or peers, teachers, so like all the things has both sides. Uh, how do digital pr- platforms and online settings that you mentioned, like social media, change the dynamics of bystander intervention and bullying, especially in the context of adolescent judgments? There are a lot of cases where a ch- child is being bullied in the online setting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Cyberbullying became a like real issue, uh-huh. especially during the or after the COVID period, because most of the 
uh, interactions platform became online during the COVID and children's online interactions increase a lot after the COVID. Of course, before the COVID too, the cyberbullying was an important thing too, but we saw the importance of even, even like it's getting even worse after children's online interactions increase a lot both in terms of their like you know uh, classes or after classes in their different types of groups in the different platforms so uh, it's so important and there are many different ways to examine bystander responses in cyberbullying and it's they are different from the like physical bullying or other forms of uh, offline bullying let's say yes. because you know in online bullying there are different components so in the offline bullying, like physical bullying or social exclusion, let's say, okay. we have the excluder, excluded, let's think about social exclusion. Okay. We have the excluder, excluded, and it's happening in a peer context. Mm -hmm. uh, so we know who is the excluder, right? Yes. We know who is excluded, right? Mm -hmm. In the social media, there is this anonymity yes. issue. So you can actually bully someone Without, without any consequences. Yeah, without any consequences and without... Any of the individuals. Exactly, you can just create a fake profile mm -hmm. and then you can just yeah. do cyberbullying to someone, right? So, it actually provides you like some room to actually uh, do, like continue to this act without any consequences. Mm -hmm. The other part of it, uh, let's again think about the offline social exclusion, right? We do have this act and they are actually uh, the bull, like the social excluder excluded someone mm -hmm. and there are let's say four peers or seven peers observing this right so this might be that right in the cyberbullying so you, someone can post something about a, a person and this post actually can be seen by millions of people right mm -hmm. that's another part of it and it might be even detrimental for yeah, the excluder yeah mm -hmm. And then the source, like let's turn again, come back to the offline part, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's happened one time, can maybe happen like second time, yeah, third time. Nobody has to know. Mm -hmm. and, and then, yeah. uh, like someone just intervene and it stopped. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, in future, maybe no one knows about this, right? Yeah. For that part, if the excluder or if the bully doesn't delete the like the things that they share, mm -hmm. it can remain there like for four years right uh, because like you experience this you know, so you have this bad experience and when you type your name into like Google you can again come come up with this event right uh, or if the like exploder didn't delete or if the bullet didn't delete the, the post right so this is another aspect of it so but like uh, there, of course, there are similarities with traditional bullying. Sure. But there are also some parts that actually make cyberbullying even like important when we consider those aspects. Right? Yeah. Again, the bystander responses also change based on different characteristics of the cyberbullying. Yeah. So you might not be able to actively intervene in that case. Right? You can just. I mean, actively intervening in cyberbullying means that you're typing a comment yeah. in that post. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, or you can force, if you know the identity of the bully, you can force the bully uh, to delete this. Yeah, yeah. Or you can just uh, report this post to someone, right? Uh -huh. to like, because to it's the, recorded yeah, on the social yeah. media plat platform. Mm -hmm. Like it has bullying in it, so it's it's harmful, yeah. uh, like content, so you should remove this post. So mm -hmm. there are these active challenges, right? 
There are some passive challenging ways, you know, you might not repost those things, mm-hmm. you know, you might just not, uh, you know, increase the visibility of this uh, post. So there are also ways of this. So there are different ways of bystander responses in that sense. And I think like online media usage education is very, very important here again, because people or children and adults, they might not aware of what is the violations of, you know, privacy thing. So mm-hmm. they might think that this action is very okay. So it might just okay oh, yeah. to post someone's post someone photos without their permission, that might be okay in their mind. So it's also important for children and adolescents to have this education, like how being an online citizen in this world, to like, you know, fair and moral online citizens in that world. Yeah, sounds like utopia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> With my master's student, Yama, we are going to start a new project on this, so just trying to understand uh, how children and adolescents will behave in a more online environment compared to real, like real life environment. Okay. Not like a similar to uh, cyberbullying, but it will be more related to because you know uh, in near future we might have our virtual oh, yeah. <laughs> virtual environments, virtual environments that we might just go and you know uh, hang out right. there. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're going to explore this. There are many studies about this issue with the gaming, uh-huh. so like how children in the games, you know, uh, being aggressively because, you know, they might not uh, humanize the characters in the game, so yeah. they can kill someone, you know, very easily, <laughs> yeah. without any consequences, Starting without considering, yeah, yeah, exactly, like, without considering any moral, uh, uh-huh. morality behind it, right, yeah. because they dehumanize that person, right, mm-hmm. so there is no mind attribution to that character sure. in the game, and right? so there are many studies on the gaming area, but we're going to, like, just shift the focus a little bit to the more virtual environment, if they assume that they are virtually going to schools, and they're having those social conflicts in virtual there is some sort of inhibitory control towards theory of mind too, it seems. Like, uh, maybe gamers have better inhibitory control of their theory of mind or empathy in general. That might be also interesting thing to look at. But uh, we are coming towards the end. Okay. And <laughs> my last question is, can you share some um, other projects of yours in the upcoming future? Uh, sure, sure, of course. So uh, we have, I mean, we have one study for uh, intervention project about promoting uh, pro-social behaviors of mm-hmm. uh, children who are non-refugee uh, towards the uh, social exclusion and bullying of refugee children. So here we're going to try to actually increase their empathy, their tree of mind, their mentalizing abilities, mm-hmm. and increase the white uh, white contact. So we have intergroup contact, the real intergroup contact, mm-hmm. but we also see from the literature that the white contact might be also important. So if they imagine or imagine contact, so if they imagine. Uh, themselves that they are having a contact with their, like refugee peer, or if they know someone who actually has a positive contact with a refugee peer, if oh, they yes. have a peer, so like kind of the indirect contact, the vicarious contact is also helpful. So through all those mechanisms, we are trying to promote the uh, pro-social bystander responses to bias-based bullying of refugee child uh, okay. of uh, refugee child like um, like bullying because of the refugee background. 
And also so far I haven't studied with the uh, refugee children and adolescents experience. So I always studied about the more majority perspective and I'm trying to understand non-refugee children's attitudes and uh, behavior in such context, but it's also important to understand the yeah, other yeah, perspective too, right? So what in my what would they do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. In my future studies, I'm also trying to involve those population to my studies sure. as well. And again, I have my some studies about civic engagement in like promoting social responses to civic uh, like the environmental crisis and like uh, gender uh, equality, gender inequality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I might also like further those studies to more civic engagement with human rights, mm-hmm. so to protect human rights in society in general, regardless of the group membership of the characters involved in those social conflicts. So uh, I'm also planning to extend those research to more human rights perspective. Hopefully, mm-hmm. uh, I like uh, I have some uh, undergrad students working, doing their uh, final uh, research thesis with me, mm-hmm. and they have uh, research on. Right now, they are all uh, under uh, development research, so we do have some research on understanding why space bullying for hearing uh, children with hearing difficulty yeah. and in one of our research we're trying to understand the teacher's perceptions mm-hmm. about bystander response with different yeah, types of bullying exactly and one of our researches will be like with individuals uh, with adults who actually how they're going to moral judgments change based on the uh, context if the context involves much adversity versus just the real uh, com- like just the daily life context, whether they're going to be helpful more to their in-groups or their out-groups, mm-hmm. depending on the whether context requires like adverse like earthquakes or different types of like environmental disasters, or whether just a regular uh, humping situation. Yeah. So those are like a few ongoing <laughs> and future research plans in this area. Yeah. I'm sure like after all this research, we will have like more new research questions yeah. in our mind as well, yeah. You're working on a lot of projects and it was really beautiful to have you here. Uh, thanks for again coming, sorry Thank for you so interrupting much. you so much. No worries, it was so nice to talk to you and also hear your ideas about those issues. So it's, it was a great talk, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you as well.